I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ocean Water. I'm stoked that you could be with us uh, for today's Beach Talk. I love helping us understand every word of God that's in the word of God so we can be the best disciples, followers of Jesus that we can be in our lives. Our objective is the simple when we teach. It's disciples making disciples who plant churches that plant churches. So in this way, we can see Jesus and his teachings be a grassroots movement all over the world. Now, in 2021, our vision is to multiply from four churches in two countries to eight churches in four countries. So I want you to be praying about this. This is a big vision. We need God to help us do this. This year, we're going to have four trips, uh, two to El Salvador in June, one to Indonesia in September, and one to Bangladesh in December. You can go to our website, and you can click on Ocean Water slash trips. You see a tab at the top of our site. You can help us go on one of these trips, install a system that turns ocean water, like the water behind me, into drinking water for people. So I want you to be praying about this. I want you to think about this in your mind and be talking to God about how he might use your life to accomplish his will through Ocean Water Church. So I want to tell you that our friend Simpapo, who leads Ocean Water in El Salvador, has been doing a wonderful job having church at his home on Monday nights, having people over for dinner, teaching a chapter of the Bible each week, and distributing water from the ocean from the front of his house. We're going to make a video about this the next time we go down there in June. Very exciting. Today we're in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he's agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, like many of Jesus' parables, this story is about an employer who, who uh, had employees working for him. Uh, and in, he promised them a reward. He also gave them a warning that God's man, matter of distributing isn't the way that we distribute. And we're going to learn about this in this story. And so, and then finally, this parable, uh, it illustrates a principle that God doesn't reward in the way that we reward or distribute justice the way that we think uh, it should be done. So the landowner went to the marketplace, which was a gathering place for day laborers. A man who wanted to work came there the first thing in the morning carrying his tools and waited until someone hired him. Now that's common practice in California as well. These workers hired at the very beginning of the day agreed to work for what was called a denarius, and this was the common daily wage for a working man. This was an entirely normal sort of workday business agreement. Now, chapter 20, verse 3, it says, And he went out for the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is uh, right I will give you. And so they went, and again he went out about the sixth hour, and they did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, like one hour before work is supposed to be done, he found others standing idle and said to them, Now, why have you been standing here idle all day, waiting for someone to hire you? He said, and they said, Because no one has hired us. Now he said to them, You go out to the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So they go, they work for one hour. Now the third hour was about 9 a.m., the sixth hour was about 12, the eleventh hour was about 5 o'clock at night, and the workday concluded at 6. Now through the day, the landover, landover went to the place where the laborers were gathered and found some standing at each of those different times, and he hired them to do the work in his vineyard. Now, this is a picture that the landowner had an inexhaustible supply of work for those who wanted to work, just like the kingdom of God. The impression is that the landowner was surprised to find people idle because he had so much to do, which is 
in many ways what God has for us to do in the world. Now, the Lionel promised the earliest workers in the day a denarius. The people hired at noon a denarius. These guys on their jet skis behind me a denarius. <laughs> and everyone he hired a denarius. Now, in verse 8, it says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And so they came forward. Those who were hired in the eleventh hour received the denarius. But when the people that came last, they thought that they would receive a lot more. It kind of makes sense, right? You work all day, you should make more money. Now, these are the day laborers, so they were paid at the end of the day. When it came to pay everybody, the men hired last were paid first for a full day of work. This is very, very upsetting. It didn't seem fair at all. Now, the men who were hired at the 11th hour who worked uh, only about one hour were obviously elated about being paid first and being paid for a full day. Of course they were. You work one hour, you get paid a full day's of wages. Now the men who worked for the landowner all day saw the men who worked for only an hour and came away from the pay table, and they suppose now if the landowner is paying these guys a full day's pay for one hour's of work, then they should. Then we will probably get far more. Now, if the first workers had been paid first, they would have not had any time to develop the expectation to get more pay themselves. But this isn't what happened. Yet the men who were hired first early in the day and who had worked all day got paid exactly what the landowner had promised them. This was the agreement, a denarius. The landowner did exactly what he promised, but their expectations were different because they had been working longer. So there's a lot in here for us to learn about. Now look at verse 11. When they had received it, they again complained against the landowner saying, these men worked last and you've made them equal to those of us who worked all day. They were upset. But when he answered one of them, he said, friend, I'm doing no wrong. <clears throat> Did you not agree to work for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. And I will give to the last man the same that I gave to you. Isn't it lawful for me to do whatever I want to do with my money? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So after being paid, the men hired first took up their complaint with the landowner. They were offended that the landowner gave the men who worked less equal to those who had borne the burden in the heat of the day. Now, it's easy to sympathize with these who had worked all day. They worked while the others were idle. They worked in the heat of the day while others shaded themselves. Yet they were paid exactly the same amount of money. Now, the landowner had to remind them that it was his money and that he had been completely fair to them. He didn't do anything wrong. He hadn't broken any promises. They just didn't like the fact that they had exerted more effort and that the pay scale wasn't adjusted. And the landowner didn't, didn't do anything wrong. The reasons for the landowner's generosity were completely the landowner himself. He was free to set the predetermined wage. They didn't have like a federally set wage. This was the wage that he wanted to pay. Now, the landowner rebuked them for their jealousy and the resentment of his generosity towards others, just like God does with us sometimes. Now, when he says the evil eye, the evil eye was a jealous, envious eye. Now, we have to be careful of this in our life. Sometimes, if we perceive people getting paid the same of us, there can be that jealous, envious eye that creeps into our lives. Now, look at verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, Peter and the disciples knew they had given a great deal to follow Jesus. Peter wanted to know what they would get in return. Now, through this parable, 
Jesus assured Peter and the disciples that they would be rewarded, but the principle of many who are first will be last, and the last will be first, meant that God may not reward us as we expect. That's what this parable is teaching. God has a different economy. So some think of this parable speaks of the way that people come to God at different stages of their life. They may come at the beginning of their life, some come in their youth, some in adulthood, some in old age, some at the very, very end, like on their deathbed. Others think it refers to how the gospel dawned with John the Baptist, then the preaching of Jesus, then the preaching at Pentecost, then to the Jews, and then finally to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. But it is best understood as a parable about grace and reward. Now, the disciples should expect to be rewarded, but they should not be surprised when rewards are distributed. God will reward others in unexpected ways. Just like when we get to heaven, the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the essence of God's grace when he rewards and blesses people according to his will and pleasure, not necessarily according to what we think and what we want. Now, the system of law is easy to figure out. You get what you deserve is foreign to us. God deals with, with us according to who he is, not according to who we are or our title or our role or our expectations. It's important to see that the landowner did not treat anyone unfairly, though he was more generous to some than others. We can be assured that God will never be unfair to us, though he may for his own purpose and pleasure give somebody a greater blessing on someone else who seems less deserving. You ever thought that man why does that person get that well the point isn't that all have the same the point is that not everyone gets the same reward though all God's people go to the same heaven they will have reward according to a different measure the point is that God rewards on the principle of grace and that we should therefore expect some surprises he will be less than fair he'll use people that we don't think he should use one of them is speaking right now <laughs> God's grace always operates on his own timetable this parable is not a perfect illustration of God's grace because the principle of working and deserving is involved. The grace of God does not give us more blessing than we deserve. It gives us blessing to us completely apart from what we deserve. Now, living under grace is, not, is, is sort of a two-edged sword. Under grace, we can't complain to God. We can't say, hey, I deserve better than this because God will apply. Doesn't that mean that you really want me to give you what you do deserve? So it's interesting that we want God to give us what we don't deserve, and we want God to give other people what they do deserve. Now, Jesus emphasized that we should operate in a state of grace, grace for ourselves and grace for others. Now, verse 17, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will be condemned to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Now what's going on here? Well, this was not a surprise to the disciples, even if Jesus had not specifically told them their movement south from Galilee at about the time of the Passover feast made it easy to figure out that Jesus and the disciples would be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, Jesus again told the disciples what awaited him in Jerusalem, but no reaction from the disciples is noted. A reaction might especially be expected when Jesus said he would be betrayed. Now, seemingly the disciples didn't really listen to Jesus when he said these things. Their expectation was so focused on Jesus establishing an immediate political kingdom. Now listen to this. 
And these words were so contrary to what they expected, it went right over their heads. It's painful when the things that Jesus teaches us often go over our heads, and it happens all the time. Now, Jesus thought about how he would fulfill the will of his Father in the future. There was value for him to look at his coming trial and to think and say, I will complete what my Father has given me to do. I will obey to the end. And that's the call for us, to be obedient and faithful until the end. Now, Jesus was remarkably specific in his announcement of his fate and foretold many things over which he had apparently no control at all. Jesus could have been delivered to the religious authorities without this. Certainly, he did not arrange his own betrayal. Yet, he confidently said that it would happen. Jesus confidently predicted that the religious leaders would do this, yet this was not something that he could have planned. Jesus knew that the religious leaders of the Jews did not have authority to carry out capital punishment themselves, yet sometimes they executed men despite this prohibition. Yet Jesus was confident that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. So crucifixion was not the only way that criminals were executed under the Romans, yet Jesus knew that this was how he would be put to death. Now, taken together, the entire picture is one of great suffering. Jesus is getting ready to suffer. Suffering from, well, the disloyalty of his close friends. He was suffering from the injustice. He didn't do anything wrong and he was gonna be crucified. He was suffering from direct insults. He was suffering from physical pain, from humiliation, and from, from being degrade, degraded. Now, verse 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, and her son's kneeling down and asking him to do something for him. And he said, well, what do you want? And she said to them, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Now, the mother of James and John came with a request that would make a mother proud uh, and the sons really, really happy. I mean, isn't that what moms do? She wanted a prominent position for them in the administration of Jesus, which they thought would be political. Now, D.A. Carson points out that the right hand and the left hand suggested proximity to the king to share in his prestige and his power. So their mom was looking out for him. Now, Jesus says in verse 22, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And they said to him, we are. So he said to them, well, you'll, you'll indeed drink of my cup and you'll be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not for me to give. It is for those whom it's been prepared for by my father. Now, what is happening here? Well, their answer, we are able seems to come a little too quick. Jesus recognized that they didn't really understand what they were talking about. So he gently tells them uh, what's going on here. Now, both James and John had to be baptized in suffering as Jesus was, but their cups and baptisms were different. James was the first martyr among the apostles, and John was the only apostle, apostle <laughs> to not die through martyrdom from a lack of trying. Now, Jesus had to be ready to be the first to die among the disciples, John had to be ready to live the longest Christian life and testimony among them. He'd write many years later, maybe 80 years later. Now, this is a good example of the word baptism having the sense of immersion or being swallowed up in it. We're to follow in the baptism, the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus here showed remarkable submission to his Father 
he wouldn't even claim his rights to himself in his worst moments, but he would yield to that of his father. Now, verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Jesus called them to, called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life uh, as a ransom for many. So Jesus is going to flip their understanding of leadership on its head. Now the other ten disciples mistakenly thought that a unique honor had just been put on James and John. They did not know that Jesus could have made the same promise of suffering to come to any of them if they really wanted it. But Jesus shows them that greatness is not positional, it's being a servant. Now the desire for position and status showed that they did not yet know the nature of Jesus' leadership. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it should be different among the people of God and in the family of God and in the church. Yet it shall not be so among you is a stinging rebuke to the manner in which the modern church looks to people in the world for both substance and style. Now the church isn't supposed to operate in the way that the world does. Now sadly, sometimes it does. We're supposed to be servants, we're supposed to put other people before ourselves. Now popularity shouldn't be a prerequisite for leadership. Humble service should be the prerequisite to leadership. Now D.A. Carson reminds us that in the pagan world, humility was actually regarded not as a virtue, but as a vice. Think about that. Real ministry is done for the benefit of those to whom it's being ministered to, not for the benefit of the minister. Many people are in the ministry for what they can receive, either materially or emotionally, from people instead of from what they can give. Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. The death of Jesus, the giving of his life, purchased the freedom of his people. The idea is that his people were in bondage as slaves, and he paid their price. Now, verse 29, Now as they went out to Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Now, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they knew that this might be their last time to meet Jesus. They had the desperate, the, the desperation appropriate for those who know that today could be their last day to meet Jesus. Now, there was an earnestness that made these guys amazing. They were desperate to be healed, so they ignored the crowd in shouting. Now, however, in the desperation, they glorified and gave him full honor with his title and everything that he brought. Now look at verse 32. So Jesus stood and called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? <clears throat> they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed Jesus, just like we're supposed to. Now, nothing could stop them on a journey to Jerusalem, but he still uh, stood to answer for a persistent plea of mercy. Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? This is a wonderful, simple, direct question that God has not stopped asking humans. Sometimes we go to God when we want him to give us something simply because we want to not, not answer this question. 
and we do not have because we do not ask according to James. So I want you to ask right now, God, or what do you want from God? What do you want God to do for you today? Now he knew that they, he knew what they needed, but God still wants us to tell him our needs as, a, as an expression of our trust and our reliance upon him. So they immediately followed him. It was a great result. Not only were they healed, but they also followed the one who did great things for them, which is what we're supposed to do with our lives. So this concludes our time looking at Matthew chapter 20. And I want you to think about what was God speaking to me about today through the speech talk. And let's talk to God about that. Let's pray to him. Prayer is just talking to God. Some of us need to hit reset or stop or start in our life. And we can always ask for God's help. Now let's pray together right now. Let's just say, God, help me to change. Help me to hit the reset button in my life. Help me to start over on some things. God, give me a fresh start. Help me to stop those things I need to stop. Help me to start those habits that I know will help me grow closer to you so I can follow you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now to wrap things up today, the Bible teaches us to give as part of our worship. Christians have been practicing this concept of giving for thousands of years. I certainly didn't invent it. The Bible teaches that the concept of giving 10% of your income to support God's work in and through the local church, that's what's been taught for thousands of years. That's what we teach at Ocean Water. So we give part of our funds in and through the local church so we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, like helping people get their water from the ocean for free and helping people build homes and being the hands and feet of God. Wherever we need to do that, I want to challenge you to be faithful in this area of your life. Watch God bless you as you do it. How do you do that? You can go to the Ocean Water website, oceanwater.com. You can click on giving and you can set up your worship there for that. Thank you for tuning in today. And as always, have a beautiful day.